What is going on, Energy Strong? It is DRW and Mike Umbro here for another episode of the Energy Strong podcast. And, and this week, uh, we welcome back a guest I had on the Hot Take of the Day podcast, Tom Lawfrey, who I'm very excited to talk to. We're going to talk Europe. We're going to talk natural gas. We're going to talk getting people fired up on LinkedIn because it's super fun. And we're also going to talk about what I'm seeing in the bottom right-hand corner of my computer screen right now, where Microsoft has now taken it amongst uh, upon them to tell me when a heat wave has hit Denver and then they, they flag in my little temperature to say what it is. It says heat wave record high. There's panic around climate. There's panic around Europe. There's panic around natural gas and energy this winter. And we welcome Tom to the show. Tom, how are you doing today? Doing well, David. As, as always, you've kind of started with a bang. So, so keep going <laughs> and let's, let's talk. Well, so let's start with LinkedIn because you made a comment just before we recorded. And I find it interesting. And it is the state of the world today. And I'm curious how you respond to this, right? We talk about youth and, and the challenges of social media and depression. And, but yet we incent people based on likes to be more agarious, more extroverted, more flamboyant. I mean, even in the, if we talk about trans for a second, if you post that you're trans, I guarantee you I would have 50,000 likes in the next 24 hours. And so it, it incents behavior. Whereas if you're being thoughtful, as you talked about, you really don't get the engagement. I'm curious how you think about that in the context of your communication on LinkedIn or Twitter and what it means for the world. Why? Well, maybe we can get to what it means for the world. Um, on Twitter, I, I tend to just sort of roll with it and post, post work um, that's representative of what we're doing at Flow. Um, on LinkedIn, there's like another set of rules, which you've sort of figured out how to maximize that. Um, but recently I put up a post that said something like, we're gonna have to have a conversation about decarbonization and what it's, and the effect that it's gonna have. And I posted a picture of German uh, power prices going through the roof. Um, I got about 20,000 hits on that and people were fighting. And some guy wants to, uh, I asked him if he wanted to decarbonize mankind and, and he was on board with that. Um, and it, it was a very different sort of result than when I post something that is like factual and important and needs some interpretation. Um, so, I, I mean, maybe there's some value in starting the fight because it wakes people up. Um, it's going to be a hard winter over in Europe, but um, you know, if that's, if that's the state of the world, <laughs> that's what I've, that's what I've seen. Was that a controversial take? I'm just curious what I'm trying to find what was so controversial about it. No, I don't think it was very controversial, but, um, I, I think there, there is going to be, there's going to be a problem that comes out of this politically. Um, there are policies that have failed. And I think people have a, a belief system that's failed. We, everyone here knows that we need hydrocarbons. It's 85% of the world's energy. And now Europe's going to suffer the consequences of going too far in the other direction. Um, so, you know, I guess there is controversy out there because people are going to kind of have to say they were wrong about something. Well, mm -hmm. as, as we saw with COVID, there is not a lot of people saying they're wrong. And that is one of the unique parts about this. And then, so I want to dive right into Europe. There would be, there is going to be a reckoning where 
energy policy and, and of course the climatologist uh, uh, catastrophists would never say this, but but the, the doubling down on wind, the doubling down on sewer, the vilification of fossil fuels, the, the destruction of coal plants with useful life and the vilification of nuclear, which we've now finally started to see turn because at least they're calling that green. We, we've walked ourselves into an atrocious corner. And Tom, I know you're passionate about what's going on in Europe. Natural gas is a big issue. Russia is an issue. Walk listeners through the nuance of supply, demand, volumes, where they're getting it, how they're covering it, and what you see happening. Is it a big stretch for me to say Europe is absolutely screwed this winter? No, it's not a big stretch at all. And people have to be saying it. And there, there are a limited number of people that are saying it. And last weekend, Ian Bremmer posted on Twitter, he said, um, even if Russia cuts up all the gas as it is likely, and they did, <laughs> um, it increasingly looks like Germany can get through the winter without severe rationing. That is going to be so painful for people. And, and we can talk about like what rationing looks like, because um, we've run some numbers. Um, but this is this is not just a geopolitical thing. This is gonna, you know, people are gonna feel pain, um, physical pain from it. And if we kind of look at some of the work that we've done to say how we got here, what we observed was LNG prices became more volatile after the pandemic. Cargos were canceled, um, and we had re increased reliance on renewables at the same time. Now you can't store the wind, and in September of, of last fall, uh, we had some low wind anomaly days in the North Sea, and everything started after that. And really, at that point, I believe that's when Putin understood he had a lot of leverage over Europe. Um, so we could kind of start there, but that that energy mix, the power mix, um, changed the ballgame. Mm -hmm. Mike, you want to take you want to take the next question, or I want to follow up a little bit on Putin, which is you know everyone's oh big bad Putin taking advantage of the Ukraine. How could he do this humanitarian crisis? Same as Hitler. We have to stop him. We have to stand up. We're shocked the Russian military hasn't done better despite hundred billion dollars of Western funding to help like fight a proxy war. But but neither neither here nor there. I mean, you just hit the nail on the head to me, which is Putin understood that forty seven percent of Europe's natural gas was coming from Russia, that 25% of the remaining natural gas was, or 25% was coming from Norway, and that that is a massive dependence on the back of an Elizabeth Warren letter that you'll recall from November of 2021 that wrote the six biggest CEOs of natural gas companies saying, stop exporting US natural gas to Europe because you're capturing an arbitrage opportunity and you're hurting American consumers. And so Putin sees all this and you can see it on charts that the export, the LNG exports were going into Europe. Like we had to know that he was going to invade Ukraine when he did, that they were preparing for this. And it's a purely strategic move in my view. I'm curious how you come on that. Is that for Mike or is that for me? No, that's for you. Tom. That's for you. Yeah, we discussed. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll chime in after. So um, maybe I'll just start with what Nord Stream flows look like. They're super consistent. And when we look at them as cumulative flows for the year, they just go up. So um, about two TCF a year has been going into, into Europe 
um, from Nord Stream 1. And then when we saw the first curtailments come in June, Europe quickly ramped up LNG. And yeah, they knew what was coming and they have oversupplied themselves right away because they knew it could be bad. They made up the whole gap with LNG shipments. It was the only answer and they overdid it. So it was very clear to them that they needed a response. Um, the flip side of that is that response has been very costly and they've managed to do it at a time when Asia has been relatively out of the market. So Asia is gonna come back in as we get into the winter and we're gonna see more competition as long as we follow normal seasonal patterns. Um, so it's, it's been a, a, a one solution response and I don't know that there could really be any other solution in this time frame. But keep in mind, it hasn't been going on for very long. This has only really been an issue since June. And now we're in a place where this is going to go on all winter and maybe forever. Right. Yeah, we recorded, you know, I keep thinking back to our recording in late July where David and I were talking back and forth. And we're like, he's just going to shut it off. And if he, if he, if he comes, if he comes back online with it, it's going to be at a reduced rate. And both those things happened. And one of my questions and interested in your view as a, you know, a, a finance background and, and how, how this gets solved from a policy perspective and a market perspective. Today, we heard, um, out of Great Britain, they've got a $150 billion rescue plan or whatever it's being called on the back of announcements on windfall profits. Last week, it's just, it seems like it's just totally uncalculated. It lacks thoughtfulness, it lacks planning. So from your perspective, what, what triggers the politicians to to start getting on board with sound policy? What triggers operators in the United States to respond? And, and what does that mix look like domestically? Because I, you know, being in California, we're having it out here. So, and I, I've got more, more comments on that later, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say the same thing about policy that you just said. All, all I know is that they're gonna screw it up. And, <laughs> They're, they're going to have to screw it up and lose political power some way or another. Um, and the, the only color I would add to that is I have a feeling that somewhere we're going to redefine that gas as being part of ESG. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the only face-saving way for the political elite to find a way out of this. Um, other than that, like my comment about me and Bremer before, I, I don't think our leadership anywhere on this planet understands how to solve this. Now, now the market pieces of it, I think, are more clearly defined. Um, we're building LNG export um, on the Gulf Coast. It's it's building fairly quickly, even though I, I know all of our producers want more of it so they can close that arbitrage faster. And, and get higher prices. Um, but these numbers are pretty big. We're adding um, Calcaso Pass is a, a BCF a day, Golden Pass is two BCF a day, and, and we're gonna add two BCF a day projects kind of on top of that for years and years. So, and, and then we get to Driftwood and Driftwood's pretty big. Um, so that is one way to solve the problem. That's something that the market can do. 
And then the work we've done at Flow has taken it one step further to say, LNG has been the answer and everyone is looking to US growth to supply that. We need to make sure that we have the drilling locations to actually supply the gas. We can get to that later. I think that's later in the conversation, um, but that's kind of the market mechanism. But then I think we all have to realize as participants here, we're probably gonna deal with leadership that messes it up before they do it right. Right. When do you think that we're gonna feel the pain in the US? Because I think that, you know, not, not, a, not only in environmental like wind farms, there's a big NIMBY uh, element where I don't want to see it near Martha's Vineyard. I don't want to see it off the coast of Bandon Dunes. I want it out there in middle America where I just came back from my 1500 mile road trip and I saw them everywhere. But the U.S. hasn't. I mean, we see $9 MCF gas, but for the most part, the American consumer has really only seen one or two billing cycles of pain. And we have not got into the winter. Do you think the U.S. like what would you say natural gas hits, and and what level of pain happens? And then do you think the U.S. clamps down on exports and sort of goes to a America first? We don't really care about Europe's problem. Like how does all this balance off? Because at the end of the day, your citizens are the voters, and if you're spreading the pain um, and, and absorbing pain because of our our policy decisions in Europe. That seems like it's not a recipe for success, does it? Yeah, I think the, the there's going to be an increase in the domestic price. Um, that will bring with it certain types of pain. Now, we've gotten used to very low net gas prices here, uh, which are great for the economy, which haven't been great for our producers who go bankrupt every time you know we have a, a small variation to the downside in price. But I've been thinking about that a lot, and the way... Right now, natural gas exports support both sides of the aisle. Um, but if we get farther down the road and people start to feel the pain, who's ever not in power, that side of the aisle is, is going to want to limit it. Or, you know, it, I'm not sure if they can shut it down. They probably can't wind it back but it's gonna become a political hot potato. Um, I, I think the wheels turn slowly, so not immediately. Um, to getting to the first part of your question, you know, eight, $859 natural gas. I don't think we figure all that out immediately, but as we grind higher, um, I, I think people will start to get it, um, but it's, it's gonna happen on a slower time frame than what we're seeing on like social media right now, people posting their power bills in Germany. Um, so I have another thought on that, but I, I, I want you to keep rolling with that idea. Okay. I got one kind of related and, and what I'm seeing as a market response, I'm seeing at least in recent transaction, European investors coming to places like California, i.e. ERA was just announced their Shell and Exxon got out of the ERA partnership to ICAV, which I was not familiar with, but a renewable developer from Europe, Germany, Spain, offices throughout Europe. So they buy ERA for $4 billion, uh, <laughs> which you wouldn't thought anybody would come in uh, financially into a place like California to buy oil production. I think it worked out to about $42,000 per flowing barrel. But then mm -hmm. they also, prior to the ERA purchase, they bought all of BP's San Juan Basin assets 
uh, gas assets. So uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, we're seeing, you know, this, this wave of environmental activism and, and Green New Deal started in Europe. And now they're feeling the effects of it today. And then I see a European buyer come into a place that is untouchable to US investors in California, but they're coming from Europe saying, hey, are they playing the energy crisis in California before it gets to that point? Is that what they're doing? What I'm just curious, what is your thought I, on, so, on that strategy? So, yeah, based, I don't know about that strategy, but based on the, the folks that, that I talk to and our clients, which are both US and European, there's a very, there are two different outlooks on, on the price of natural gas specifically. So even a year ago, before all this happened, our European customers were coming to us with bullish reviews on net gas saying, you know, we, we need to think about four and $5 gas. And that seemed crazy. Um, now our, still our US guys are thinking, I've been burned on that gas so many times. Um, I can't believe what I'm seeing on the screen right now. And so I think the European is much farther ahead in, in this process. Mm -hmm. um, so that doesn't explain that transaction necessarily, but, but I know for sure I hear two different things. Europeans bullish on gas, US guys, not so sure. Well, and, and I think that you caveat it perfectly. I remember a time in 2012, that we were running 90 and 425 price decks forever because that made the most logical sense at the time. And I mean, natural gas hadn't seen above three bucks in 10 years. And here we sit at nine, 10, eight, nine, eight, 10, seven. I mean, it's the volatility is incredible. Why don't we take a step back, Tom, and, and talk about flow and, and what you set flow up to do, what it does, and then some macro thinking on the theme of natural gas if the U.S. has been backfilling for the world, is this sustainable? How do we manage it? Where do we go from here? Yeah, so at Flow, what we do is we use automated processes, machines to um, enable investing in energy at much better speed and accuracy. So I was a hedge fund guy, and as a credit hedge fund energy investor, you eventually become a distressed investor and you, you start to look like a private equity investor. And what we found was our reserve estimates that we were getting are bad, our type curves are bad, and our location counts are bad. So um, I looked at that situation and realized there were $2 trillion of assets out there that were priced wrong. And we started flow in 2018 to address that, to have more accurate well forecasts as a start and then build the technology stack from there, be able to repeat it faster and find the needle in the haystack. So I think the first conversation we had was about Permian well performance. And I think that I even scared you. <laughs> you you um, did, you did. And, and, and I'm a scary guy when it comes to type curves, well performance and spacing. And, and yes, you, you definitely, you definitely scared me. I'm curious as you've looked back on that, how have you felt the predictions have looked? What has surprised you before we pivot back to natural gas? So we nailed that. Um, the, 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 but what we were up against was a group think that had convinced itself of something that was just totally wrong. So all we had to do was believe that we had the right answer when we were looking at all the data. 
Now, since then, we've gotten faster with what we're doing and we've made it bigger. And so we can look at things at a basin level. And more recently, um, kind of similar to what we've done in the Haynesville right now with our work, we looked at the Permian a year ago and said, the Permian producers can't push the growth rate the way they have in the past because they don't have the inventory depth. And where are we now? EOG has a single digit growth rate. Pioneer has a single digit growth rate. Uh, Oxy has basically said everything that we've said by now. And we're a year down the road. We have a million barrels a day coming out of the SPR because um, the administration thought that we would get that growth out of Permian and it's not there. Um, so- Which was we, such we an obvious miss. It was such an obvious miss that you can't be pounding 24 wells in per spacing unit, even in the $100, $150 price environment, you know, you're going after tier two zones, spacing, especially in the Eagleford Bakken, we are so massively overdrilled. And then the Permian, whether it's permit issues in North Dakota, uh, sorry, New Mexico, or just Texas has been so overdrilled in the Midland uh, and, and the, the, the Delaware Basin has some geolo geology issues. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, as you know, I've been talking about peak oil USA since 2019 and people thought I too was crazy. And yet here we sit, with something that's extremely predictable from a data standpoint. And it, it causes a major gap in our policy in terms of energy independence and, and where we go from here in terms of oil migration into yeah. and out of the, of the country. So, so it's nobody's job, except for maybe mine, maybe yours, to, to predict and discuss these sort of things. Um, and that's, you know, that's not a, a, a slag on anybody, but if you're working on an individual project or you're drilling wells, like it's not your job to say the growth rate of the Permian Basin won't hit, uh, you know, an investment bank's numbers. That's so it's you know it's a it's a very important problem that nobody's really tasked with it. But so where we have found ourselves over time is going from these micro situations in the Delaware Basin to much larger questions about which way the wind is blowing. So we can find things that are going to drive commodity prices a year out. There's a lot of noise between here and there, um, but we can say in one year, we're not going to see a growth rate in the Permian Basin. Okay, so that's something to happen. And now we're into a giant geopolitical situation. That's probably the biggest thing that we've all seen since maybe the shale revolution started. And what's on the table is a U.S. Marshall Plan for Energy, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so can we now start to think about what the right price has to be? Because um, that, was, that was part of your loaded question there. Um, and, and I can say pretty confidently that the back end of the curve doesn't reflect where I think marginal uh, production needs to come on as we deplete that first wave of really good, really good, Haynesville inventory that's 3,000% IRR now, but it doesn't last forever if we're going to rewrite the rules for the entire globe, which is what we're talking about. I'm, I'm curious on just, I, I know the answer, I think, but do you get inquiries from the Department of Energy? Do you get inquiries from the, the EIA or, or anybody that's helping to shape policy about, hey, we got to get smarter with this. We need, we need tools to, to know what we're talking about. Not yet. I mean, I would, I'd like to get there one day as, as we grow the business. Um, our customers tend to come to us and, um, you know, we're not a big place that's 
that's pulling on a lot of marketing levers right now. Mm-hmm. So we've grown uh, 100% organically and through word of mouth, and we haven't landed in any sort of uh, government role yet. But I know we could have done a lot of good if, um, you know, I, about a month ago, the White House, one of the White House spokesmen stated that the SPR plan was based on the EIA's Permian growth rate, which is wrong. And then they said, we didn't get a million barrels. We have to put this on the producers now um, and in October when the SPR comes off. So I would have liked to have helped them because that policy was a flop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, total, total flop. It made, it made no sense then. It makes no sense now. And, and then overarching, so what do you say to the environmental lobby that says, look, Tom, I mean, you keep trying to defer the, the blame for wind and solar, but wind and solar is working exactly as we'd expected. And, and this shows the volatility. You know, we're, we're relying on Russia for gas. We're relying on Saudi for oil, Iran for oil, Iraq for oil. We have all these regimes that we don't love. That are, that are sending us our energy. And if we could just use the wind and solar and technology continues to improve as it has, you know, we'll figure out a way at some point to harness it. And it's just net, net, it's so good. And, and this is really the fossil fuel company's fault. You know, they should have foreseen this coming. They're the experts. They should be ramping up production to, to get those 3000% rates returned. And they're just being obstinate and not doing it. What do you say to those people? Well, th- there are some people with very good ways to discuss this um but i mean for me it's just very simple like it doesn't replace the energy needs that we have so you know hydrocarbons are way too important way too big and they're way too good at producing energy so i don't get too much into that discussion (laughs) um but i think there's some people that are good at fighting it but it doesn't work so, and, and this is a great example of it because it only took a couple days of the wind not blowing in the North Sea to set all these dominoes into effect. Um, this is something that we put out to our clients last, um, a few months ago where we annotated the low wind days on UK baseload prices. And we're supposed to think that renewables aren't baseload, right? But what we observed is baseload prices spiking on days when renewables weren't in the mix. But I mean, in some ways, this is not my argument to be had, but it all it, it all moves upstream to to oil and gas. Well, that, I mean, that is the piece that I, I when I am asked that question, Mike, I'd love your answer for this as well. But when I'm asked that question, I said, when you are relying on something that you cannot turn on, you mean you need a hundred percent redundancy for that system. And when you have vilified and not operationally streamlined the access to the backup system, you are going to see spikes. We saw it during the polar vortex in Texas that even though we were in, in uh, Colorado and totally independent of the grid of Texas, we saw massive spikes in power that we'll be paying for for the next two years. And so it is an interconnected system. And when you have a shortage of one, the prices of another must go up. Mike, how do you answer that question? Yeah, we see it in California because you see a massive amount of solar coming online and 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 online today, but it's still uh, 10,000 megawatts last I looked shy of what natural gas was producing on the grid in the middle of the day in California. And so it does, it, it, it pushes out 
kind of that traditional baseload. But then I've also seen some analysis on, on our grids carbon intensity has really remained unchanged despite the adoption of more renewables because you're importing so much at night, you don't have storage capacity and it's a, it's a huge issue and rates are going up for the consumer. So it's kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing what's happening in Europe thinking, wow, I'm, I'm going to be living this. I am in a way, but we're just not quite to that level of catastrophe on the grid yet out here. And it's, it's the broken leg problem. And, I don't remember who said this to me at this point. It's probably someone that, that listens to your podcast. Um, Cause I know it was an energy person, but it takes you a second to break your leg and wants to heal it. Mm-hmm. And it's great analogy. So what, what we were, we're looking at in Europe, we, if we rewind to the pandemic, LNG uh, voyages got canceled and they got behind. And with the higher renewables mix, it got harder to get inventory, to get to get gas deliveries when they needed them, and then uh, European storage exited the winter really low last year, and they've had to build it back up. Well, what's going to happen next year? We're going to exit low again, and they're going to build it up again. And so, how do we get out of this cycle? It's it's going to be very hard. So, Tom, it's part of my approach and I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable about it. Um, I am, I am a, a broad Overton window um, <clears throat> talking about the worst case scenario. And I have said uh, for over a year that millions of Europeans will freeze to death and tens of millions will go bankrupt. Now, last year, we obviously saw a slightly mild winter. We hadn't seen the, the Russian invasion as of yet. So certainly was wrong on the millions of deaths directly. Uh, we've certainly seen Europeans who've been posting their power bills, you know, pubs are going from 60,000 pounds in Britain to 400,000 pounds. I think about a 10 times doubling or a 10 X uh, increase in your power. If power used to be 4% of your business and now it's 40% and you had a 10 or 15% margin, all the margins gone 25% negative. You lay everybody off. If you're standing in April 1st next year, and you're looking back on Europe and what happened, what do you think the, the byline of the story is in the first two paragraphs look like? Oh, well, I don't know about that, but um, your question leads me to a little exercise that we did. It looks like it's going to take about 20% rationing to get through the winter in Germany. Um, Germany consumes a Hainesville of gas every day in the winter, about 15 BCF a day. Um, to get through the winter, with no Nord Stream flows from here on out and to use their storage and make some assumptions about LNG, people are gonna have to cut back. Now, just assuming it's across the board, um, which isn't gonna be possible, but 20% rationing means you can use as much heat in December and January as you use in early October. So when it's substantially warmer. Oh. Yeah, so that's about 17 degrees Fahrenheit difference. Wow. So we're talking like nice, cool fall weather versus 36 degree, you know, Fahrenheit wintertime. And you can use the same gas that you used in October. Policy probably won't be applied quite that way, but like that's cold, right? So does that mean a house is 53 degrees Fahrenheit? Like to be that explicit in order to have the same heating value that's 20% less in October, 
you assume you heat a house to 70, 17 degrees off that. Every European house in Germany, every German house will have to be at 53 when it's 36 outside. Well, or you gotta shut down rooms in your house. But yeah, your, your example is a good one. Well, how do you shut how do you shut off how do you shut off well two points how do you shut off rooms number one pipes will burst right and you can't really do that and and then number two i mean europe has already clear-cut most of their forests for exactly that reason to use wood to burn and wood notwithstanding the fact it's renewable is not exactly great for the environment so where are they going to get this wood to supplement the natural gas it, it doesn't seem reasonable in 53 degrees I don't know anyone that would want to keep their house at 53 degrees. And, and, and it, gets, it gets harder because a good chunk, of, not necessarily in Germany, but throughout Europe, a good chunk of that gas is used for power. And people are going to conserve their power less easily than they'll conserve their heat. Um, you can't really turn down the power, right? Yeah, your fridge, your fridge is going to run if you, if you have an electric vehicle and you drive 100 miles a week or whatever, your, your load... Is going to be exactly the same. Uh, you're right. Your your power would be very very difficult to change, and all industries that are building anything that employ Germans need power to run. And and so that's probably the easier slack in the system is industry. Do you, do you have to do you have to give up industry to keep people above fifty three degrees in their house? But then, but I mean, and so so walk me through that. You give up industry, you give up supply chains. We've seen that. We shut it down. We've seen that. We've seen all the effects of the lockdowns. Now you have factories like Volkswagen not building cars, not employing people. And even though that person's house might be able to be 55, they have no income, no job. The factory in their town just closed down. No goods. They're like that, that sounds like an absolutely atrocious scenario. Mm-hmm. So like end of days, like yeah. the nights are the nights are dark and full of terrors, uh, Game of Thrones stuff. Yeah, it, it's the way every Stephen King book starts. Power so, out. so the answer is just yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's brutal. That's brutal. Well, but true. We they they need a lot more LNG, and you know very clearly Putin reacted to the price cap, uh, the oil price cap situation by shutting down Nord Stream 1, um, not, uh, not Nord Stream 1, um, <laughs> but Nord Stream 1. And so there's, there's a real issue here. This is, this is war. And the only answer in the near term is more LNG. And I would just point out that Asia comes back to the market usually right around now. So yeah, I think this is, this is a bad situation. Well, and, and we talk about sanctions. And again, I've been writing about this since the beginning of the war. I mean, the Russian ruble and people can say it's because it's a fixed, it's a fixed game. The Russians are demanding payment in rubles and they're setting the price to which I say the, the, the yuan in China is set. I say that uh, oil trade six X, the volume that is produced every day, like our financial markets are, are already sort of tomfoolery. Uh, so I, I don't know if I call it that, but I have been saying for a long time, the only answer is to remove Russian sanctions. Because if you don't get that gas flowing, Europe is absolutely aft. Um, but to your point on saving face, that's a very hard yeah, one. Yeah, I think it's getting harder to do. I mean, that, that's, just that's just a bad, we're stuck between a rock how, how and a hard would, place. Um, you know, like 
Dave, I'll ask you a question. If if you all of a sudden became a, an ambassador and we sent you over, how would you get the gas turned back on? I, I don't think anyone has an incentive to do it. Well, I'm. I mean, there, the incentive is, as you pointed out, Europe will lose industries, lose lives, lose jobs, and the riots. I would project, like, will make 1924 Weimar Republic burning barrels of of money in Germany like look kind of reasonable. So, so to me, I mean, the answer is Russia. We need you flowing, and we agree not to support the war anymore. We would, we would facilitate peace talks that see the delivery of Eastern Ukraine, the neutralization of, uh, of the remainder of Ukraine, a, a new government in place. And, uh, and in exchange for that, natural gas needs to flow under a treaty where it can't be shut in without force majeure provisions that, that are adjudicated. I mean, again, like, yeah. So, so then what about when the New York Times front page says, renewables cause loss of Ukraine? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, but not, it's not wrong. And so again, I think about, yes, it would be nice for the narrative to protect the elites. The reality is hope is not a plan. And there are millions of Europeans and, and millions of Germans who are going to feel the brunt of something that they were told was cost-free and good for the world. And, and I, as, as unempathetic as I am, I don't want to see people die without a fighting chance, I, yeah. I guess. And, and, and these um, sort of rational market-based scenarios that I see people putting on social media now, they're all like a 15% to 20% um, rationing. And no one has said that means you're actually going to be cold in December. Yeah. So you're the person proposing this. Are you going to be cold or are you going to be just fine? Well, they're going to be just fine. They're going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah. Which also, like to your point, you can ration by 20%, but, but presumably that means prices will stay the same because we just don't have enough. If you ration by 18%, prices would theoretically, or 22%, they would drop which then would encourage consumption. Like we have this weird interplay where by consuming prices would drop, which would encourage consumption. By not consume, by, by consuming too much, prices are gonna go up, which discourages consumption. So we have this really weird interplay of like, how do you even tell a household, you know, once you run out of power for the day, we're just shutting off your meter for the next Yeah, and, and you're right, because we've taken the supply response out. Once we've, you know, there, there is no marginal, assuming there is no marginal supply response from Russia. It says, oh, well, you know, the, the price went up, uh, you know, so many euros per, per, you know, megawatt hour, we're going to supply more. Well, like, there's no supply response, right? I, I think what we're actually seeing is the fruition of the European term degrowth. This is what degrowth looks like. And this is what their Green New Deal was all predicated on was we have to degrow and degrow is cold and degrow is lonely. And ultimately, 
the investment structure globally needs to move away from the BlackRock ESG model to, you know, focused on counting carbon like calories in the atmosphere to what is a holistic approach that we can maximize the benefit to the environment, but maintain our standard of living. I, I agree. Tom, my last question for you, and I don't know if you want to touch it, the oil price cap. I mean, and, and I put this in the backdrop of the U.S. will never exceed 12.8 million barrels a day of production as we had in November of 2019. Can't happen, won't happen. Even if you believed that we could like de-bottleneck de the supply chain, I just don't believe that it's possible. We will continue to be more reliant on foreign oil. And now we have this, this idea that, that we can cap a price that Russia gets for its barrels and, and ergo somehow reduce the amount of financing that Russia is getting as a result of selling their product. And presumably someone benefits on the spread. If it's selling at hundred in the market and Russia is selling 60, some bankers making 40 bucks in the middle or some country or like somebody's doing something. I'm curious if you want to weigh in on the price cap. I, I mean, I, I can't even get my head around how this could succeed. And just, just so that everyone, so that we get it out there, Russia's basically washing their oil through India right now, and they're not worse off. And um, I don't think the price cap idea changes that, but the price cap idea on Friday did get Putin to turn Nord Stream off. So in, in Putin's mind, he thinks he's winning, I'm sure. Um, you know, he has a high price on oil and he's causing Europe pain. So, and he's subsidizing China and India by selling them barrels at 60 when the rest of the world needs to pay 100. So not only is the world punishing their own economies, but we're actually stimulating Indian and Chinese consumption, which means that they will increase consumption at a time the world needs flat to declining until the sanctions are gone. It, it's truly remarkable. Well, to your point, like the- one, one of the scenarios I've been a little worried about is kind of the post- Iranian revolution scenario where we had a big uh, supply disruption in oil in uh, the late 70s. And OPEC got formed, then OPEC realized that they could cut production and the world just dealt with less production. So those are the kind of moving pieces we have now. And I've been wondering in the back of my head a little bit this whole time why OPEC doesn't cut. And so now they kind of snuck in that 100,000 barrel a day cut. Um, so they can take control of the market very quickly if, if Russia, if we're actually gonna take Russian barrels off the market, why would OPEC use their spare capacity into that? And they've already said they won't, but why don't we take that one step further? Why don't they cut? Then what do we have? We, we have a full-blown economic war between Brazil, Russia, India, China, and the Western world. And the Western world is losing. And not only a little, they are losing very, very badly. Yeah, so I mean, it's, I think it's not crazy to think about, and especially as someone who spent nearly 20 years in hedge funds, you know, what are, what are those tail situations that people don't give any credence to? Like, is, could 5%, could this happen? I, I bet it's more than 5%. It would be very bad. And there would be a whole set of dominoes that fall very quickly. Well, it is, it is the reason, and then Mike, I'll turn it to you. It is the reason that I am 
effectively totally out of equities and extraordinarily long oil because I just look at the way Europe is going and, and the fall on effects. And I don't think it's well understood because people have made a career of trying not to understand energy in order to push their green narrative. And they've had to ignore the physics of energy their entire career. And now all of a sudden they're like, well, it'll be fine. But I don't believe that it is going to be fine. I think it's gonna be brutal, Mike. I don't, I'm, I'm right there with you. And just to throw in Ecuador, they bought about $300 million worth of Russian diesel. Uh, and of course, everything produced in Ecuador, 70% of that comes to California, who is the greenest state and, and wouldn't be drilling in the Amazon rainforest, not California. So I'm the same, I think. And I, I think to Tom's point, that, that uh, crisis on on oil supply is going to hit California first because we are the state that's importing more oil than any other state. We're the fifth largest economy in the world, and it's all going to start coming unraveled here uh, off the coast of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And and I've been seeing it for years. And I, I think all the data, you know, no one wants to talk about it, but somebody has to start talking about it in a thoughtful way. Tom, you get the last word. What do you want to leave listeners with? Well, I guess the thing that, that I want to leave, leave everybody with is if the U.S. is going to be the solution to this or lead the way as the solution, it's actually going to be pretty complicated. We're going to draw on our resource pretty hard. We're going to have to build infrastructure. And it's not just going to all be about the Haynesville or about the Marcellus. It's um, a, a lot of factors are going to come into play. And then what I don't have the answer for is how it all fits together because there are assets all over the place and people are going to have to figure out where they think prices are going and how they can participate in this because this thing's big. It's, it's beyond anyone's podcast. Well, with that uplifting discussion, <laughs> but, 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 but honest, I mean, and this is, this is what I would say. I would say this constantly. I always say it. We need to have these conversations. They can't be censored. They can't be punches pulled. They have to be honest. They have to be open. They have to be transparent. They have to expose themselves to data weaknesses. They have to state their assumptions. But you have three energy folks sitting in this room looking at the way the world is unfolding. And we have some serious and deep questions about our policymakers. And that should cause a lot of people a lot of concern. Tom, I really appreciate you joining. Mike, as always, great to see you. And Absolutely. until next time, be safe, be good. Have a great day and bye for now.